I'm pleased to introduce to you this morning uh, fellow pastor Ryan Lazier. Serves as an associate pastor at Grace Bible Church in Moore. Um, several months ago, as I was planning the preaching calendar, I knew that I'd be in John 21, talking about Peter's restoration. I knew the next week we'd be gone at a conference for most of the week. And I had been talking to Ryan. I knew what he was working on in his education. He's writing on the resurrection, and I thought it'd be a great time for us to look at 1 Corinthians 15, look at the resurrection. So I asked Ryan to come and speak to us. He's been at Grace uh, for about six and a half years. His wife, Tracy, and he have two children, Nora and Hudson. Um, so this is a like-minded brother. We've gotten to reconnect after several years. Uh, we, we were acquaintances in college. Gotten to reconnect at conferences and things, Simeon Trust in particular. Grateful for this like-minded brother and grateful for the word of God that he's going to bring to us this morning. Well, it is a, a privilege to be with you this morning. It's always a joy to be able to preach at another church and just to be reminded that God's kingdom is far bigger than my local church or this local church. God is doing good work all across the upstate, all across the globe. So thank you, brother, for inviting me. I'm so glad to be able to be here and to proclaim these life-altering truths about Christ's resurrection from the dead. So will you pray with me before we begin? Our great Father in heaven, you are so magnificent beyond words. You are especially magnificent in that you sent your son Christ, Jesus, to come and redeem and rescue us as, as we've been singing as we've been praying, as we've been discussing, Lord, we are a fallen, broken people in desperate need of redemption and forgiveness. And we thank you that you have sent your glorious Son to accomplish that redemption for us. And not only did he die as a substitutionary sacrifice, he conquered the grave. He rose again from the dead, and that is what gives us hope. So, Father, as I proclaim this resurrection hope this morning, help me to proclaim it clearly. Help me to do justice to your word as we open it up this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Yaroslav Pelikan, great name, once remarked, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. Now, what did Pelican mean by this statement? Well, on the one hand, he says, if Christ is risen, it is the most important event in the history of the world. And it's worth devoting your entire life to its cause. On the other hand, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then nothing in this life truly matters at all. Now, why is that? Well, what does Christ's resurrection signify? It signifies that life exists beyond the grave, that when someone dies, they don't just cease to exist. 
But if Jesus stayed dead and life doesn't exist beyond the grave, then when we die, we're simply worm food. We came into existence without any kind of purpose, and we will pass away from existence upon our death. No ultimate purpose, no ultimate meaning, just arbitrary, random existence. So the stakes couldn't be higher. If Jesus rose, then life is filled with meaning and purpose and eternal life, a future resurrection for all who are in Christ. But if he stayed dead, life is devoid of any meaning at all. For this reason, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus' death and resurrection is of first importance. It's of first importance because without it, Christianity is a hoax. As Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He goes on to say that if he didn't rise, we are of all people most to be pitied. We're just wasting our time here in the only short life that we have. Therefore, since Jesus' resurrection is of first importance. We're going to spend our time this morning examining the historical evidence for it. And we will do so by examining 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. So please turn there with me. I really have two purposes in mind for this message. First, if you're a Christian, I want to increase the confidence that you have in your faith. I want you to see that the historic claims of Christianity, specifically that Jesus died and rose again, it's not based on wishful thinking. There really are compelling reasons for believing that it happened. The second purpose is to equip you to go out and share. Share the gospel of Jesus with boldness. It's no secret that our culture is becoming increasingly skeptical towards the truth claims of Christianity. It used to be that a majority of people were interested in what the Bible had to say about Jesus and and their eternal soul. They were interested because most people sort of believed that the Bible was true, but not anymore. Usually people reject the Bible. They think of it as an unreliable text. They assume it's just man-made and littered with airs and offensive material and certainly not relevant for 21st century life. So are you prepared to engage those people with the truth? To show them that Christianity is true. There really are good reasons for believing that Jesus not just died, but he rose again from the dead. This morning, I hope to equip you to do just that. So look with me together. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. The Apostle Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and then to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all of the apostles. 
Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The contents of this text form the linchpin of the Christian message. As Paul says, it's of first importance. If this text reports false information, then the Christian faith crumbles. But if it reports true information, then Christianity is true. Its significance cannot be overstated. So this morning, if you're taking notes, the main idea I want to convey is this. Christ's resurrection from the dead can be verified historically. That is to say, the gospel message isn't some made-up story. It's not a legend. It hasn't been tampered with, no. What we read about in this text is the message that the earliest followers of Jesus reliably preserved for us. So this morning, I want to give you three reasons for believing that the resurrection really happened. First, the earliest sources reported. The earliest sources reported. To make this point, we're going to focus on that beginning phrase, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. For many, we're tempted to skip over this phrase, right? Get to the good stuff. It almost seems like a throwaway phrase, but that would be a mistake. Why? Well, how many of you have ever heard of the children's game telephone? Back when I was an elementary school teacher, I used to play this game with my kids. It was always a lot of fun. They had a great time with it. I'd start out by whispering in that first kid's ear something like, Mr. Laser is the best teacher in the whole world. And I would sit there and watch the kid whisper it in the next kid's ear, all the way down to the end, till eventually the last kid would blurt out the message, Mr. Laser has a bald head. Kids can be brutal, right? Well, critics of Christianity believe that something similar happened with the story of Jesus. After his death, stories about Jesus circulated by word of mouth all around the Roman Empire. And while the story started out with a very human Jesus, as the story passed from one person to the next, hundreds of times over all across the Roman Empire, the story gradually accrued legendary material. And so by the time someone actually wrote down the stories in what we now know as the gospel, the story had changed so much into now that Jesus is a miracle-working son of God who died and rose again for our sins. It's the classic legendary embellishment story, much like the one our grandparents used to tell us about walking to school in three feet of snow, uphill, both ways, right? Now, the critic obviously doesn't believe the Gospels were written by traditional authors. They also don't believe that the earliest Gospels were written until about four decades or so after Jesus' death. And they argue that 40 years is a lot of time for legends to creep into the story. Well, unfortunately, this morning we don't have time to examine the reliability of the Gospels. I will simply make the brief point that a 
40-year time gap for a biography in the ancient world is actually quite short. This is especially true when you compare it to the earliest biography for someone like Alexander the Great, which came 400 years after his death. And scholars think that biography is quite reliable, so 40 years should not concern us. That said, I do want to show us that we can actually get much closer to the time of Jesus than four decades by examining our text, 1 Corinthians 15, and thereby eliminating this legendary embellishment theory. When Paul begins with the phrase, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, he indicates that the message he's about to proclaim didn't originate with him. Rather, Paul is passing along a tradition that he had received from others. We know this because Paul actually uses technical terminology for the words delivered and received. The Greek words paradidomi, paralambano. These were words that were used in schools, the Jewish and Greek schools for passing along tradition. In fact, Paul uses these terms elsewhere in 1 Corinthians when talking about the Lord's Supper, a very familiar text to us, where he says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Again, there, Paul is passing along a tradition that he had received from others. Even a prominent atheist scholar, Bart Ehrman, says this, The terminology of received and delivered, as often noted by scholars, is the kind of language commonly used in Jewish circles to refer to traditions that are handed on from one teacher to the next. Now, what exactly is Paul passing along here? Well, most biblical scholars agree that the message that Paul is passing along here, the text that we read this morning, isn't some generic Christian statement, but rather a Christian creed that the early church used to recite in corporate worship. You need to remember that most people at this time couldn't read. They were illiterate. Also remember the Gospels hadn't been written yet, and so the early church created these creeds that were easy for people to memorize, which explained the core tenets of their faith. Additionally, scholars agree that the text from verses 3 to 7 didn't originate with Paul because the text contains a lot of terms that Paul never uses elsewhere. For example, Paul never uses the phrase, the twelve, when referring to the disciples. He also never uses the phrase, according to the scriptures. The phrase he likes to use is, it is written. Paul never mentions on the third day or the 500, and finally, Paul typically refers to sin in the singular, but here in the creed, it's plural, sins. All that to say, Paul didn't create this creed. He's passing along an earlier tradition. Now, maybe you're wondering, why do people think it's a creed? Well, the text exists in this stylized parallel form. If you look at it closely, you'll see lines one and three are parallel with one another, as are lines two and four. 
And this is exactly the structure one would expect if the goal was for illiterate people to be able to memorize it and recite it regularly. Now, one final question remains with respect to this creed, and that is where and when did Paul receive it? Fortunately, Paul provides a brief biographical sketch for us in Galatians that I believe sheds light on this question. In Galatians 1, Paul indicates that after he converted to Christianity, he didn't immediately go up to Jerusalem. Rather, he spent three years in Arabia. Then he writes, After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, sadly... The word visit here isn't the best translation for the Greek word, and listen to it, hysteresi. Hysteresi. There you can hear the word history, right? The word is actually better translated to inquire. Paul came to inquire with Peter and James. So what do you suppose they talked about for those 15 days? Well, C.H. Dodd famously quipped, certainly Paul and Peter didn't spend all their time talking about the weather. Absolutely not. We can imagine that Paul spent those 15 days finding out everything he could from Peter and James about their experiences with Jesus. After all, those two are the ones who are specifically mentioned as eyewitnesses to the resurrection in the text that we read in the Creed. This time when Paul visits Jerusalem is most likely the time when he would have received the creed. And if that's the case, the creed originated in Jerusalem and dates to before the year 36. Now I say 36 because if Jesus died in 30 and Paul converted in the year 33, which is about where most scholars believe he was converted, three years after that gets us in Jerusalem at 36. And if Paul received the creed in 36, that means it was already circulating before he got there. Biblical scholar N.T. Wright argues it was probably formulated within the first two or three years after Easter itself, since it was already in formulaic form when Paul received it. We're here in touch with the earliest Christian tradition. So to sum up, the Jerusalem church was proclaiming the creed of 1 Corinthians 15 as early as two years after Jesus' death. Now, if we were to look at this dating on a graph, it shows just how early this Christian creed was saying that Jesus rose from the dead. And this early date rules out any objection that the resurrection is the result of legendary embellishments. They were proclaiming the message of Christ's resurrection when the events were still fresh in everyone's minds. Furthermore, they were proclaiming these details in Jerusalem, the very place where people could go investigate the claims for themselves. So here we see the earliest sources reporting Jesus' resurrection from the dead. 
The resurrection cannot be the result of legendary embellishments, as legends often take centuries to develop. Moving on to our second reason now for believing that the resurrection really happened is that the empty tomb suggests it. The empty tomb suggests it. Now, the creed doesn't specifically say that the tomb was empty, but it implies as much when it says he was raised. In fact, when you look at the Gospels closely, you realize that nobody saw the exact moment that life returned to Jesus' body. But many did observe the empty tomb that Jesus left in his wake. So what kind of reasons then do we have for believing that the tomb was empty? Let me give you three. First, Christianity could not have gotten off the ground in Jerusalem if Jesus' body was still in the tomb. Now, there are some critics who suggest the women were all confused that morning. They, they went to the wrong tomb, saw it was empty, and then started this rumor that Jesus must have raised from the dead. The Gospels, however, report that the women paid very careful attention to where they buried Jesus' body. But let's just, let's just suppose that the women really were confused. How plausible is it to think that nobody thought to go check the actual tomb themselves and set everyone else straight? I mean, certainly the Jewish leaders would have been motivated to do this, right? They could have exposed the whole story as a sham by presenting Jesus' dead corpse to the public. And that would have brought Christianity to a swift end. Remember, Jesus is publicly crucified and buried in Jerusalem. So the very fact that Christianity exploded in Jerusalem demands that Jesus' dead body, it's nowhere to be found. Second reason for thinking the tomb is empty. The Jewish opponents even admit it's empty. How did they do this? Well, in Matthew 28... We read that the chief priests paid the guards to tell everyone that the disciples stole the body. You see, none of the Jewish leaders were arguing that his body was still in the tomb. No, they implicitly admit the tomb's empty when they're saying the disciples must have stolen it. And guess what? It wasn't just the earliest Jews making this claim either. Justin Martyr in the second century he says the Jews were still circulating that same rumor in his day. While writing to his Jewish counterpart, Justin remarks, you Jews have sent chosen and ordained men throughout all the world to proclaim that a godless and lawless heresy had sprung from one Jesus, a Galilean deceiver whom we crucified, but his disciples stole him by night from the tomb. You see, these reports from Christianity's opponents assume that Jesus' body was no longer resting in the tomb. And when an enemy will admit facts in favor of their opposition, well, those facts are more than likely true. For example, if your mother says, you're a nice guy, 
I might believe her. I might not. She's your mother. What else is she going to say? But if your sworn enemy says you're a nice guy, well, then you must be a nice guy after all. And the very fact that the Jewish leaders, the enemies of Christianity, were saying the tomb was empty strongly suggests the tomb really was empty. And third, the third reason for believing the tomb is empty is the early church never would have credited women as its key eyewitnesses. If this whole story is made up, they never would have done that. Why? Well, as Richard Bauckham says, men from the ancient world perceived women as, quote, gullible in religious matters and especially prone to superstitious fantasy. In other words, men didn't trust women. And one doesn't need to look very far in the Jewish literature to see the same misogynistic attitude at work in early Judaism. For example, we read in the rabbinical literature, sooner let the words of the law be burnt than delivered to women. That sounds pretty extreme, right? Well, how about this statement from the Jewish rabbis about a woman's testimony in court? They said, any evidence which a woman gives is not valid to offer. This is equivalent to saying that one who is rabbinically accounted a robber is qualified to give the same evidence as a woman. You see that? A woman's testimony was on par with a convicted criminal. Now, with this understanding, one would be hard-pressed to know why the early church would fabricate details about women eyewitnesses, knowing that it would hinder their case and that no one would take them seriously. Here we have an example of an embarrassing detail. The early church would never have made this up. Certainly, if the church invented the empty tomb story, they would have listed the male disciples as the key eyewitnesses, not a bunch of women that nobody would believe anyways. The only reason, then, that the Gospels list women as the key eyewitnesses is that they must have been the key eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. No reason to make that up. This brings us to our third and final point this morning. The third reason for believing that Jesus rose from the dead is that his earliest followers proclaimed it. The earliest followers proclaimed it. And not only did they proclaim it, but they did so even though it meant their persecution. Now why would they do this? Why would the earliest followers keep proclaiming a resurrected Jesus even though it was costing all of them dearly? Well, skeptics offer two reasons. So I'm going to tell you the two reasons why they didn't, right? These are the skeptics' objections to why the disciples were proclaiming it. First of all, it's not because they lied about it. That's what skeptics argue. The disciples lied. They stole the body. They lied about it. Now, we don't have time to document how every follower of Jesus boldly proclaimed 
Jesus in the face of persecution. So let's just briefly consider the three individuals that are mentioned in the creed. Cephas, better known as Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul. All three of these men underwent a significant transformation after Jesus' death, and eventually all of them died a martyr's death. Let's begin with Peter. While Peter was one of the original twelve, the Gospels report that he cowardly denied Jesus three times during Jesus' trial. Again, that's an embarrassing detail the church would not have made up. Also, Peter is conspicuously missing during the crucifixion, presumably in hiding because he might be next. But then we turn our attention to Acts. And there in Acts, we find Peter boldly proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. He's threatened repeatedly by Jewish leaders. He's thrown into prison, yet he continued to preach. As he and John said, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. History notes that Peter continued preaching the gospel throughout the Roman world until the time of his gruesome death. Writing in the late first century, Clement of Rome affirms, Through envy and jealousy, the greatest and most righteous pillars have been persecuted and put to death. Let us set before our eyes the illustrious apostles. Peter, through unrighteous envy, endured not one or two, but numerous labors, and when he had suffered martyrdom, departed to the place of glory due to him. In writing near the end of the second century, Tertullian, another church father, also affirms Peter's martyrdom, but he provides further information. He writes, we read the lives of the Caesars. At Rome, Nero was the first who stained with blood the rising faith. Then is Peter, girt by another, when he is made fast to the cross. In other words, Peter's death by crucifixion was part of the historical records in the second century. James also underwent radical transformation following his brother's death. Mark reports that during Jesus' ministry, his brothers believed that he was, quote, out of his mind. They thought he was crazy. John says, quote, not even his brothers believed in him. Again, these are embarrassing details. The church never would have made this stuff up. Subsequently, however, the book of Acts and Paul identified James as a leader in the Jerusalem church. And history reports that James also suffered martyrdom for his faith. A first century Jewish historian, Josephus, reports that a Jewish authority, quote, brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, whose name was James, and some others. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. After all, Christians were frequently seen as people who were breaking or violating the Jewish law. Early church historian Hegesippus 
also reports in the second century that Jewish leaders placed James on the pinnacle of the temple so that he would publicly recant his beliefs before the crowd. And when he would not recant, they threw down the just man and said to each other, let us stone James the just. And they began to stone him, for he was not killed by the fall. And one of them, who was a fuller, took the club with which he beat out clothes, and he struck the just man on the head, and thus he suffered martyrdom. Similar to Peter and James, Paul's life also takes a radical turn. By his own admission, Paul formally persecuted the church. But in a stunning turn of events, Acts reports that Paul is converted, gloriously converted to Christianity, and he immediately starts preaching Jesus as an apostle of Jesus Christ. As a result of this radical transformation, Paul notes that he endured beatings, stonings, and imprisonment. And eventually, he paid the ultimate price of martyrdom as well. Clement, again, in the first century, remarks, Paul also obtained the reward of patient endurance and suffered martyrdom under the prefects. Tertullian, in the late second century, adds that Paul is beheaded has been written in their own blood. Now I ask you, what best explains the radical transformation of these men? Peter the coward, James the skeptic, Paul the persecutor, all radically transformed into these bold proclaimers of Jesus Christ, even though it cost all of them their lives. Knowing what they went through, is it really reasonable to believe that they lied about the resurrection, that they made it up? Of course not. Why? Why would anyone willingly endure persecution for something they made up and with nothing to gain on top of it. There was no money or power or women to be gained by this ploy. In fact, the early church had no power to speak of until Emperor Constantine 300 years later. All that these earliest disciples had to gain was being ostracized from their communities and being persecuted by the Jewish and Roman authorities. Surely, if it was all made up, someone, someone would have fessed up along the way. Back in the 1970s, the infamous Watergate scandal took down the then president, Richard Nixon, along with several other accomplices. One such accomplice was Chuck Colson. Colson ended up serving jail time for his role in the scandal. Colson, however, says that his own experience in the scandal demonstrates that the disciples weren't lying about the resurrection. Here's what he says. He notes, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? 
because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. They proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. One would think that at least one, at least one of the disciples would have admitted to the hoax to avoid crucifixion or stoning or beheading. Yet we have no indication that any of them ever recanted. Now, some might object to this and say, well, yeah, what what about the Muslim martyr who blows themselves up in the name of Allah? That doesn't prove Islam is true. And you would be right. That doesn't make Islam true. But let me tell you why the disciples' martyrdoms are different. The Muslim terrorist sincerely believes in the cause he is dying for. But he dies on the basis of faith alone. On the basis of faith alone. He's not in a position to know for sure whether or not Islam is true. While he is sincere, he could be sincerely wrong. The disciples, on the other hand, didn't die on the basis of faith. They were there. They were the eyewitnesses. They were in a position to know for sure whether it was made up or not. And they still willingly died. So in short, some people will die for something they believe is true, like a Muslim martyr. But they will never die for something they know is false. And the disciples would have known if it was false. In other words, liars make bad martyrs. Additionally, the theory that the disciples stole the body and then lied about it doesn't adequately explain how both James and Paul converted to Christianity. They needed more evidence than an empty tomb and a story. In fact, when you read the Gospels, when people saw the empty tomb... Most didn't immediately assume Jesus rose from the dead. They all thought that someone had moved the body. Certainly, Paul had already heard stories about the empty tomb, but that never convinced him of a resurrection. Neither Paul nor James, two men committed to Judaism, would have jumped ship over an unoccupied tomb. Something more radical was required. Something like a post-resurrection appearance. We can be confident then that the disciples didn't lie about it. We can also be confident that Jesus' followers didn't hallucinate either. Now based on the evidence, the evidence that we just examined, that the disciples willingly suffered for their belief in a resurrection. Many critics say the disciples 
sincerely believed they saw Jesus, but it was just in their heads. Believe it or not, this is probably the most popular objection to the resurrection. They hallucinated. But this objection fails on multiple fronts as well. First, hallucinations are by nature private experiences. In this sense, they're a lot like dreams. Now, as cool or fun as it might be to share dreams with other people, dreams just don't work that way, right? If so, I could, I could just tap my wife on the shoulder at night and ask her to join me in a dream on our free vacation to Hawaii together. That would be great. Save me a lot of money. So the notion that all of the disciples, women, and other eyewitnesses all shared in the same group hallucinations at different places and in different times, well, it's just, it's absurd. Medical doctors will also tell you that when people hallucinate, they, they don't report having conversations with the apparitions, touching them or even sharing meals with them. Now, while ghosts and spirits may be able to do a lot of things, eating fish isn't one of them. Yet these are the details that the Gospels report when the disciples saw Jesus. Another problem with the hallucination theory is that it cannot account for the empty tomb. In other words, hallucinations might be able to get Jesus in the disciples' heads, but hallucinations can't get him out of the tomb. Yet as we already saw, the empty tomb is a historical fact. And finally, hallucinations cannot explain Paul's resurrection experience. After all, the person most likely to hallucinate is a grieving individual who's lost someone close to them. But Paul hated Christians. He certainly wasn't in the frame of mind by which to hallucinate. But the fact that Paul radically changes suggests that something radical happened to him. Now certainly, many people have hallucinated throughout history. Perhaps some of you have. But we don't have any record of anyone changing their worldview or cherished beliefs over hallucinations. Moreover, we don't have any record of someone who was willing to die or suffer for their hallucinations. The hallucination theory just doesn't work. For these reasons, we can be confident that Jesus left the tomb, and appeared to his followers. As we've seen, the earliest sources report it. The empty tomb suggests it, and the earliest followers proclaimed it, even though it cost many of them their lives. Jesus' resurrection also best explains how Christianity came to be. The disciples had experiences with Jesus that then led to the explosion of Christianity. Within just a few weeks, thousands, thousands of people left their lifelong cherished belief in Judaism, something that was so important to them. They left that to worship Jesus as Lord. 
And this all happened because the earliest followers proclaimed what Jesus had done. They shared the message. If you think about it, Jesus' resurrection wouldn't have led to the explosion of Christianity around the globe if those first eyewitnesses had kept quiet about it. If they remained scared or embarrassed. But it was their bold proclamation of the risen Jesus that quite literally transformed the world. And for 2,000 years, this is how the Christian message has spread. People boldly proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead, from one person to the next. And eventually, someone passed that story along to you. And now it's your turn to pass the story along to others. We must pass this along because this is the message of hope that our dying world so desperately needs to hear. We live in a culture so many people who live as if there really is no purpose in life. And that worldview can certainly lead someone to despair. It's no wonder we live in the most miserable and fearful society in the history of the world. But we have the message of hope. And that message is that life exists beyond the grave. That eternal life is possible through Jesus Christ. That because he rose from the dead and defeated death, all who put their trust in him will also rise from death as well to eternal life. As Jesus said in John eleven twenty-five, 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Also in John 6, verse 40, Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That is why the resurrection is so important. Eternal life is possible. Jesus will raise all who have put their trust in him. If you're not a Christian, friend, this message is for you. Jesus raised from the dead. It happened. It's the solution to your greatest problem. He will give you forgiveness of sins and eternal life. If you simply turn from your sins to Jesus and trust in him. Christian friends, let me encourage you to be like those earliest followers of Jesus who boldly proclaimed the resurrected Jesus even though it cost them dearly. They were beaten, stoned, thrown in prison, beheaded, and crucified all because they knew the world needed to hear what Jesus had done for them. So will you do your part too? Will you seek to persuade people that Jesus really did conquer the grave? He is the risen Lord of the universe. 
Will you pray harder than you ever have before that God would give you this boldness to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus? Will you remind yourself that the same Holy Spirit who emboldened Peter and James and Paul also lives in you? God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. It is my prayer that as we have examined some of the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection, that you will be emboldened to go proclaim that good news with confidence. That you will be reminded once more how good that news really is. Jesus died and rose again. He blazed the trail for future resurrections. So go tell the world, this is of first importance. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I can't think of anything more important to talk about than Jesus' resurrection from the dead. I pray this morning that as I've shared some of these truths and some of these historical details, that this really would give your people a renewed confidence in their faith, that they would realize our faith is rooted in history. There are good reasons for believing that it's true. And I also pray that it would embolden us to go out on mission, to go proclaim Christ's resurrection, no matter what the consequences might be, that we would be reminded that your spirit who indwelt Peter, James, and Paul also indwells us. So Lord, empower us to go on mission for you today. And I pray for any who have not embraced Jesus as Lord, that today you would bring true conviction of sin, that they would see Jesus really did rise, that Christianity is true, that Jesus is their only hope. And I pray that they would look to Jesus this morning. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.